The word is what makes you strong. Something I read uh, years and years ago in the scriptures. They're easy to remember Luke 180, Luke 240. Luke 180, Luke 240 says that Jesus grew mighty in his spirit. And John the Baptist grew mighty in his spirit. And that jumped at me. That God wants people, his people, to be mighty, mighty. Not barely eking by, but mighty in their spirit man. Because that's how they grew. That's how the Son of God grew and John the Baptist grew. Well, how's it happen? Knowing the Word of God and knowing the God of the Word. So let's pray together tonight. Father, we just thank you for this powerful time in Colossians. We ask you, open to us the Word of God. And we thank you for it. And will you breathe a prayer, church, and say, Lord, speak to me tonight. I need your Word. I'm thirsty. I'm hungry. Lord, fill me to the full tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise God. And Stan, you did a great job tonight. Thank you so much. Amen. All right, you can be seated. By the way, he's taller than me. He's about 6'3". All right. Now, let's look at this. Everybody say with me, don't get robbed. When was the last time somebody tried to rob you? How long has it been? A year? Two years? And somebody tried to rob you? You're wrong. They tried today. His name's the devil. He tried to rob you today. And he'll rob you tomorrow morning if you let him. He'll rob you before you get home if you let him. So we're going to learn tonight on how not to get robbed by a particular thing. Let's look at it. Now, last time we saw that we are to be rooted and built up in Christ Jesus. Say this with me. As go the roots, so goes the fruit. Isn't that simple? But that's true. If the roots are healthy, the fruit will be healthy. If the roots are bad, the fruit will be bad. So said Jesus. We are rooted. We are built up. We are established, overflowing, taught, and thankful in him. Now, when Paul gave us those adjectives describing us in Jesus, it paints a picture of the abundant life. We are to be in an abundant life, not a barely getting by life, but an abundant life. Now next, Paul takes a direct shot at the claim of Gnosticism. Now remember, Gnosticism is just one of, it's just typical of all cults. So it doesn't really matter the particulars that Gnosticism uh, delved into. What Gnosticism did was it marginalized Jesus, his work, his person, and any teaching that does that is false teaching. Jesus was and is deity. Gnosticism sought to take that away from him. It invaded the Colossian church, really the, the most inconspicuous, seemingly unimportant church on the map of that day, but Satan thought it was important enough to try to establish his beachhead of false teaching right there. He picked on the least among them, the weakest among them, tried to find the weakest link where he could establish a beachhead of Gnosticism and then send it throughout the church and ruin the doctrine and the teaching of Jesus. Now, uh, they claimed to have secret knowledge, and it was not by the blood of Jesus you were saved, but it was by knowledge you were saved. 
Now, Paul gives a warning here in verse 8. He says, see to it that nobody spoils you with philosophy and vain deceit, which conform to human traditions and the way the world thinks and acts, and not after Christ. What did this teaching seek to do? Get the church folks, like you and me, who love Jesus, to be conformed to the world. Conform to the way the world thinks and conform to the way the world acts. And so Paul says, watch out now, because false teaching and false philosophy seeks to shape you. It's not just something you listen to, but it, the, the, the intent of false teaching is to grab hold of your mind, grab hold of your life, and play a part in shaping you until you are conformed to the world and not Christ. So he called it being spoiled. Now the word spoil is powerful. It means goods stolen in a time of war. Paul is saying, I don't want you to allow you, yourself, to be taken captive. The one that is actually stolen or taken captive in a time of war and stolen away by the enemy in a time of spiritual battle. Now, I want to assure you something tonight. Today your mind was attacked. Today my mind was attacked. If, I, if you watched the television, if you read the paper, if you listened to the radio, if you were out there in that world circulating anywhere in any way, shape, or form, your mind was attacked by the thinking of this world. That's why Paul says in Romans 12, don't be conformed, put into the mold of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. So we have a choice to either be conformed or transformed. The will of God is that we are transformed. How does it happen? It happens in between your ears. It happens in your thoughts. How are we transformed? By our thinking. It is by our thinking we are either conformed or transformed. Conformed to this world or transformed as members of the kingdom of God. And Paul said there's an attack and it comes in the form of philosophy. That means the way you view life the way you view God, the way you view people, the way you view events, all sift through the prism of what your philosophy is. Believe it or not, every one of you, I don't care what your educational level is, you're a philosopher. You know why? Because you've come to some, some conclusions about this life. You see this life a certain way, and the way you see it is based on your philosophy. So he says, watch it now, because the world's always going to get you, attack you, and try to seduce you in the battlefield of the mind. That's where it happens. Spoil can also be a term used for kidnapping or the plundering of a house. Look out, he says, lest somebody rob your house. That means your spiritual life, who you are in God. The devil wants to rob you. Jesus told us the truth about him. He's not a figment of our imagination. The devil is not make-believe. He's not Brothers Grimm. He's not some fairy tale. But Jesus said he comes only to rob, to kill, and to destroy. Well, how does he do it? Philosophy. 
the way you think, the way you see things, how you respond to life. This is the menace of false teaching. Those who persuade people to abandon truth for error are seducers and they are robbers. Now, how were the Colossians and all Christians, us here tonight, and our friends listening by radio, how are, uh, how are we in danger of being robbed? Through philosophy and vain deceit. Or as one commentator put it, through intellectualism and high-sounding nonsense. You know what a Ph.D. is, don't you? Piled higher and deeper. <laughs> Not always, but a lot of the time. The more degrees you get, the more confused you are. We need the wisdom of God. And, and, and I believe me, I'm, I'm educated. I went all the way through, got a doctorate. I'm, I, I did it. But I want to tell you, I've seen a lot of educated fools. And how does the devil come at us? Through intellectualism and high-sounding nonsense. Take uh, evolution. I, I, there is no ground for it. It is a religion. It's not a fact. It's never been proven. And yet how many people have been taken captive by that intellectual argument that this world evolved all by itself by the forces of time and chance instead of by the direct creative power of God? How many people have come to that conclusion that we evolved from a monkey? That makes a monkey out of you. There's no proof. As a matter of fact, they don't have a tail to swing by or a leg to stand on. And yet, our colleges teach it like it's gospel fact, but it's not. It's never been proven ever. The missing link has never been found. And the more time goes by, the more clearly evolution is false. It's high-sounding nonsense. It sounds good. But it's high-sounding nonsense. And how have people been taken captive by it in their mind? It's an intellectual argument for how things came to be. But it's false. God's view of men's philosophies, here's the way God sees them. They are vain and they are based in pride. Now again, I'm not against education, but I am very against the wrong kind of education. I think we ought to always work our minds and learn God gave us a brain to use, and we should use it. But boy, you've got to be careful where you get your information. Very selective and very discerning. God says they are vain because they don't lead men to Him. Worldly philosophy will not lead you to God. And they are based in pride because they don't seek to give God the glory for creation or for truth. In Romans 1, we're told that when men turned from God to false idols, the mark of their turning was, quote, for although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. Wow. Look at that. They knew God, Paul says, but they didn't give Him the glory. And they did not thank Him. They didn't have time for God, thanks for God, the attention that God wanted. They weren't focused on Him. They rejected Him. And when they refused to give God glory or to thank Him, here's the consequences. It affected immediately their thinking. Their thinking, Paul says, became futile. You know what that word means, futile? The hamster's wheel. 
You're giving all your energy. You're going 100 miles an hour nowhere. He's saying worldly philosophies that men pursue, you're on there, you're learning, 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 but it's taking you nowhere. It doesn't lead you to fulfillment or peace or to God. And look what happened. Their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were what, everybody? Darkened. Where is our country today? Where is our country today? Is our country giving God the glory? Is our country thanking God? And we kind of booted him out. Look what happened when we kicked God out of our schools. I ask you, did this happen? Their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. We gave up the Ten Commandments for metal detectors. Now some of the most dangerous places you can be are schools. And they're not learning reading, writing, and arithmetic much anymore. They're being brainwashed in militant homosexual propaganda. They're being brainwashed in gender politics. They're being brainwashed in liberalism. Look what happened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became what? They said, I'm wise now. And what did God say? No, you're a fool because I'm the cornerstone of all education. Education begins with God. Our educational system was never better than when God was the cornerstone. It was never better. Now, rather than becoming wise, they became fools. Rather than growing in the light of wisdom, they stepped into the darkness of deception, and it will happen every time. If you don't give God the glory and you don't thank him, and you kick him out of your life, and you exchange his glory for another glory, then you will descend into ignorance and darkness. Now, the Bible goes on to say concerning worldly wisdom that has no room for God. 1 Corinthians 1.21, in God's wisdom, look what God did. In his wisdom, he decided that the world would not come to know him through its wisdom. That's what God decided. Okay, you think you can, you can come to know me your own way? Go for it. But I've already decreed you will not find me in worldly wisdom. You will not find me in worldly philosophy. You won't discover me on your own effort. Because I am revealed, I'm not found. Nobody wakes up and finds the Lord. He found you. He convicted you. He had mercy enough to show you that you were lost, that he was real, that he died for you, and that you must come to him. But if he hadn't shown it to you, you'd be out there walking around in darkness right now. So God is not discovered. God is revealed. Now, instead, God was pleased to save those, I love this, who believe through the foolishness of preaching. Some guy getting up and just preaching John 3, 16, God says, that's the way you're going to find wisdom, something that foolish. Just somebody standing up and saying, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believed in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And I'm telling you, you need that. You're lost. You need to get saved. Through the foolishness of preaching, God said, that's how they're going to discover wisdom, not by all the high-sounding nonsense. The Bible says that man is incapable of arriving at genuine truth 
on his own. Isn't this humbling? We like to think we can find it on our own, don't we? High IQ, you know, we're smart, we're educated. But God says, you know what? You're never going to be able to find divine truth on your own. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, here's why. Because the God of this age has blinded your mind. If somebody is lost, it's because the God of this age has blinded their mind. Those who don't have faith, so they could not see the light of the gospel that reveals Christ's glory. So until God removes the veil and shows us the truth, we're blinded by the God of this world. It's just that simple. Now, human wisdom brings us into conformity to the world and its way of thinking. But godly wisdom brings us into the knowledge of God's will. Romans 12, 2, we already quoted it. We can do it again. Read this with me, everybody. Don't be conformed. Well, that's about four of you. Let's try it again. Don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you can figure out what God's will is, what is good and pleasing and mature. So as I spend time in the Word and my mind is renewed, I begin to realize what the will of God is for my life. And I find out that it's good, it's acceptable, and it's perfect. Now, no matter how brilliant somebody is, how educated, how witty, how talented, the natural mind of man in all of his philosophizing cannot arrive at divine truth. 1 Corinthians 3.20, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise. He knows that they are worthless. So when I look at evolution, when I look at secular humanism, when I look at all these isms, I say, you know what? That's worthless. It's worthless. It doesn't lead me to God. Any philosophy, Paul says, that is not after Christ is worthless. Well, Pastor Jeff, that sounds real narrow. It is narrow. Well, it ought to be more complicated than that. It's not. Why do you want complication? Isn't your life complicated enough? God made it so simple that the simplest person can come into it. Christ is our completion. Chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. Listen to this. Read it with me, everybody. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him. Turn to your neighbor and tell him that. You are complete in him. Some of you didn't do it. I, Jane's all by herself. You are complete in him. All right. <laughs> you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. The Bible's message is so clear. What happened at Bethlehem sets Jesus apart from all others. Hear me, church. The Apostle John wrote, read it with me, the Word was made flesh. My translation, deity wrapped itself in skin. Think about that. Deity wrapped itself in skin. God came down to pitch his tent among us, 
to dwell among us bodily, filled with all the fullness of God. This can be said of no one else but Jesus. There's nobody even in the same stratosphere as Jesus. This has been said of no other man in all of history but Jesus. The entire Godhead, let's catch what he's saying now, the entire Godhead has taken up permanent residence in the body of Jesus. Paul says all the fullness, that doesn't mean part, that doesn't mean 90%, that doesn't mean some, all of the fullness of the Godhead bodily dwells in him. I mean, these things, you could stop now, walk away, and think about it for a year and not fully get it. The word for fullness is plenitude, which speaks of all the glorious totality of what God is in his nature, his person, his personality, his character, his attributes, and his essence. It was all dwelling in Jesus. All of this inhabited Jesus bodily. In every sense, the Lord Jesus was literally God manifest in the flesh. So that when Jesus looked at you, he looked right through you, knew, knew you head to toe, knew you before you were ever born. When he looked at you, he looked through you, in you, around you, above you, below you. He could tell you all about you before you said one word to him. Why? Because all the fullness of the Godhead, that's why he could walk on water. That's why he could walk through locked doors and then eat fish. That's why he could stand up and tell a wave to stop rolling or the wind to stop howling. That, that, that's why demons fell at his feet and screamed out for mercy. That's why he could take bread and pray over it, under, you know, a loaf or two, and it would feed 5,000 people. Because all the fullness of God, the Creator God, let there be, and it was something out of nothing. That's why he could multiply bread. All the fullness of the Godhead bodily was in the body of Jesus as he walked around. They crucified that. The truth of all this, we can only partially grasp. Remember where Paul said, now we see things imperfectly as in a cloudy mirror. But then, when he comes again, when we go to heaven, when you reach perfection in heaven, we will see everything with perfect clarity. But until then, we're walking around with smoky glasses on. We see it, but we don't. We, we, can, we can get it, but we don't. If we could really fully grasp what we're reading right now, we would all hit the floor. All that I know now is partial and incomplete. But then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. The day is going to come. I'm going to know completely as I'm known completely. But until then, I have the Bible. God's revealed truth. Now, nevertheless, we are filled to the full in Him. He is our all. He is all we need. We are filled to the full in Him. 
God help the apostate church leaders of our day who voice their reprobate view of Christ with statements like what I read recently. Are you ready? Quote, Buddha, Confucius, and Muhammad are saints, said a leader of the church. Another declared, we utter their names with reverence. I don't. I don't utter their names with reverence. As great souls who have received God's message. No, they didn't. But it goes on, ad nauseum, for their contemporaries in all after time. They say this about these other so-called religious leaders, despite the fact that Confucius sacrificed to the dead and Buddha was a false god who declared about himself, no one is like me. In the world of men and of gods, no one is like me. He had that right. Or that Muhammad was a false prophet, which he was. But the Bible brings us back to the simplicity of then Jesus Christ. Paul says, forget about all these. I want you to get your eyes on Jesus. I want you to focus on Jesus. I want you to understand that in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. I want you to understand that God has wrapped up all of his wisdom in him. I want you to understand you are complete in him and you need no other. I want you focused on Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to get ready because Paul is next going to fill us in on several amazing miracles Jesus wrought for us in his death, burial, and resurrection. We're about to see the defeat of Satan. Do you want to see that? All right, now, verse 11, read it with me. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, we know, most of us, that Old Testament circumcision was done away with in Christ Jesus. Because in Christ, the physical is replaced by the spiritual. The ritual is replaced by the reality. The pictorial is replaced by the actual. In Christ, the believer sheds the whole body of carnal affection, lust, self-effort, and reliance on the flesh. Period. A Jewish boy was made a partaker of the Abrahamic covenant by the rite of circumcision, but not us. We are made partakers of the new covenant by means of the cross, not a knife. When Paul uses the expression putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, it comes from a word used of the stripping off of one's clothes, but it involves more than that. The word conveys the idea of leaving them behind forever. See, what Jesus did was permanent. It was for good. And you know what? He's crucified your sinful body of flesh on the cross forever. Forever. Everybody say with me, forever. That means it doesn't have to be done again. It's forever. It's once for all. The body that was controlled by the flesh, you remember those days? Has been cut away by the cross of Christ, God's scalpel. In Christ Jesus, we can experience a glorious deliverance from the assaults of evil that come through our body because that body of sin was crucified with him. I know I'm repeating this a lot lately, but I'm going to keep on saying it. 
Were you there when they crucified the Lord? Yes. How were you there? The body of sin, the Adamic nature that we inherited through Adam was crucified with Christ. That's where it is right now. It's back there on that old rugged cross. He crucified the body of sin so that you could live a new life with a new nature. Can you say it with me? Crucified. crucified. That's why Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Now, look at verse 12. Buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Now, there's that word, water baptism. You know the last water baptism we had? We had something like 16 people signed up and not one showed. Shame on you. I'm smiling. Those of you who listen to my radio think I'm thrashing you. I'm not. But they didn't show. Now, I don't know why. I mean, that's pretty rare. But I want to tell you, we got to understand what water baptism is. Baptism is intended to be an outward expression of an inward experience. Baptism doesn't save you. I'm sorry, but it doesn't. Well, that's not what I was taught. Well, you were taught wrong. I'm going to get emails on that one. It just occurred to me. That's okay. It doesn't save you because if you were on death row and you came to Christ and they couldn't get you to some water and you said, Jesus, forgive me, and he forgave you of your sins right then as soon as you asked for it. And if they can't get you to water, you're still going to heaven. In baptism, we first take our stand in the water. Well, what does that represent? Water is an element that spells death to us. Why? Because if you stay in it too long, you're going to die. We weren't designed to live in water. So to stand in water is to stand in an element that spells death to all that we are by natural birth. Because we are not fish. We don't have gills. So to stand in the water, we're standing in something that represents death. That is, we're not made to live in it. Then we're immersed under the water, symbolically buried. We are then raised up by the power of another person's arm. Boy, I love that. And if Jason, our youth pastor, baptizes you, you may get whiplash. Because he goes, foop, like this. I've never seen anything like it. Foop, just like that. <laughs> and I've seen people <laughs> come up out of there with their head dragging behind. <laughs> I said, boy, I hope we've got insurance watching this guy. But here's the idea. You're standing in something that represents death for you, if you because you're not meant to live in it. And then you are immersed. You are put under. And we say buried with him by baptism into his death. And there you are under the water, symbolically buried. Then you are raised up by the power, not of yourself, but another person's arm to stand on resurrection ground and to walk 
henceforth in newness of life. What happened to Jesus? He was killed. Then he was buried. And he was raised by another arm. The arm of resurrection power. And he stood up and walked out. Well, I just had a Holy Ghost touch just then. Do you understand the power of resurrection power? There are some things never going to happen in your life apart from resurrection power. And one of them is when you get a new life. It's not a New Year's resolution. It's not rehab. You are raised from being buried with him by another arm into newness of life. So baptism, baptism is a graphic illustration to a watching world that we have now identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And the Bible commands us to be water baptized. Those of you that didn't show up, I don't know if any of you are in here, but you're commanded to be water baptized. Because we are, we are testifying to the world. I've been buried with him, and now I've been raised by his arm to live a new life. Because I'm a believer, when he died, I died. When he was buried, I was buried. When he arose, I arose. This is not a mere ritual. It's a glorious reality. We are risen with who? Christ. We are risen with him. And verse 13 it's going to get better now. You being dead. You know what dead means in the Greek? Dead. You are dead. How many of you realize dead people don't seek God? You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. But what has he done? Read it with me. He has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. What the knife did to the flesh by way of circumcision, the cross does to the heart by way of crucifixion. We are now made alive. You could almost say L-I-F-E-D, lifed in Christ Jesus. And all of our trespasses are forgiven, but it gets even better. Are you ready? Look what he says. I love this. Verse 14 having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way. And where did he put it? Remember that cross we had here? Okay, we had that big cross here. Okay, your old man was crucified at the cross, but now we're told something else was crucified at the cross. Your old man of sin is crucified on that cross, but what else? He says the handwriting... Well, let me show you the New uh, Living Translation puts it this way. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away, nailing it to the cross. Okay? So you got the old man is crucified with Jesus. But then something else was. God had a case against you and me. God had a list against you and me. As a matter of fact, the cross deals not only with the question of self, that old self crucified with Jesus, but also with the question of sin and with the question of Satan. We're going to see in just a minute. But as to our sin, our problem was the handwriting of ordinances, the record of all the charges against us. God had a case against us. 
all the vast machinery of sacrifices and offerings that were such a part of the Mosaic law did not cancel out your sin or mine. They didn't. All they did really was they covered our sin. They, as it were, swept it under the rug. But they didn't cancel the sin. All of those feasts and the, the, the Day of Atonement and, and the Passover, all these things, none of them canceled out our sin. They swept it under the rug. God was waiting for the blood, the blood, the only blood, and the cross to cancel the sin. So our dilemma was and is that we could not and cannot keep God's law in our own strength. Ever tried? Have you ever tried to keep God's Ten Commandments for a week? Have you ever tried it? I, I double-dog dare you to try it. <laughs> Just try keeping all of His commandments perfectly for one week. Just one week. You will fail. And the Bible says if you fail at one, you have failed at them all. That's what it says. With each passing day, the record against us only grew because sin requires judgment. Sin requires justice. Now, we were in essence fugitives from justice. You were a fugitive. And I was a fugitive. God required a reckoning. There was, we might be able to say, for illustration's sake, a wanted poster out there for every one of us. Wanted. Wanted. Our day of judgment was set. We were racing toward the great white throne judgment of God. Every one of us, God had a case. Now, then Jesus came. He lived out a perfect life. He died in our place. He lived out those Ten Commandments without fail his entire 33 years, without a blip on the radar screen. He never had to say, oh, forgive me. I'm sorry, Lord. I, oops. Nope, not once. And what did he do? He took our judgment upon himself. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away, nailing the list to the cross. The old man's nailed to the cross. The list of charges against us nailed to the cross. It's back there, and it's there now. We could say that the wanted poster with all the charges against us attached was nailed to the cross of Christ, <laughs> and all the charges against us were canceled. We ought to give the Lord a hand of praise for that tonight. Seriously. Because until then, we were fugitives from justice, fugitives from God, running, ducking, dodging, hiding at every chance, hiding from God. But now, it's all on the cross. All those charges. Now, it gets even better. Here's my favorite part. Verse 15, it says, Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. That is, in his crucifixion of the charges against us. Because the devil would go to God and say, you saw what they did, you know what they did, and he would list to God what we did. And God had to agree. But not now. Now when the devil goes to God and says, you see what they did? He says, no. Didn't see it. 
Well, you, you know how that they really are. Well, I, I, all I see is Jesus when I look at them. That's all I see. You say, well, you say, well, um, and the devil will say, yeah, they really blew it today. Did you see them in rush hour traffic? They totally lost their temper. They yelled at that person through the window. They didn't act like Jesus at all. And God says, you know, I just, I just don't see it. I, I, I have a problem, devil. Here it is. I have on red sun glasses. They're red. Sun glasses. So when I look at them, I just see red. But they're blowing it all. No, I, I'm sorry, I just don't see it. You have no more case against them. Let me tell you where it is. It's nailed on the cross of my son. Oh, yeah. Now, Paul has in his mind's eye when he talks about this verse right here, when he talks about making a public spectacle of them, them being principalities and powers, those being demon spirits, the emissaries of the devil and the devil himself. He triumphed over the emissaries of the devil in his crucifixion. Paul has in his mind's eye a Roman triumph. He sees the conquering general approach the capital as the cheering crowds line the streets. Here comes the conquering general. He's got all of those he has taken captive in the war behind him. Chained to his chariot wheels, is the way they would do it, are the warriors whom he has taken captive in war. He's parading them through the streets. And the crowd is cheering. Our general won the victory, and there's the captives he took. And he would make a spectacle of them. Thus has Christ Jesus triumphed over Satan and all of his principalities and powers. They had all gathered at Calvary, that is the devil, and all of his legions were focused at Calvary. There they added to his torments on the tree, glaring delightedly at his death, but it was all premature. When his sufferings were over, the Lord of glory bowed his head and released his spirit. Into thy hands I commit my spirit. Down he went to the underworld of Hades. He preached to the spirits in prison, according to Peter. Satan and his minions learned there of the extent of their defeat and their doom. The keys of death and Hades were wrenched from the hands of Satan. I would give anything to have seen that. Because until the cross, Satan had the power of death. And he held the whole world in bondage to the fear of death because he had the power of death. But Jesus went down to Hades, according to Peter, preached to the spirits in prison, declared his victory, and the devil had to give up the keys to death, the keys to hell, and the keys to the grave. Now, I, I really believe the tidings ran back and forth across the underworld. Have you heard? Have you heard? Oh, no! Soon Jesus rose from the dead, ascended back to glory, and is now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. But there was more. There was way more. The Holy Spirit was about to fall. The church was coming. Eternity was coming. The lake of fire was coming. And where was the devil then? Chained to his chariot wheels. Spoiled a public spectacle to all of the heavenly hosts. That's what Paul said. Paul said, all the heavenly hosts 
saw a spectacle made of the devil as Jesus paraded him by them, triumphing over him in his cross. The cross was the devil's biggest mistake. If he could go back and undo anything, he'd go back and undo that cross. But he can't. Now he's been exposed to public infamy. The devil's a dog on a leash. Now, I don't take him lightly, and I don't fool with him. But I'm going to tell you the truth. He's a dog on a leash in that he's allowed some of the length of the chain, but he's chained just the same. He is now a doomed foe, all because of the cross. That's it. Now, next time we're going to see, don't let people judge you. Can you stand up with me? <clears throat> you know, these things, we teach them and we read them in the, in the Bible. But really, you have to go away and think about what you heard. How did Paul know these things? He wasn't there when the devil was paraded by the heavenly hosts and made a spectacle of. How do you know that? Paul know that. Divine revelation. But that's what happened. So I want you to know that the victor is living in you. The winner is living in you. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The devil is a defeated foe and Jesus is a triumphing general. The captain of the Lord's hosts. That means he's given you the victory. So can we just thank him right now? Lord, we just thank you for the truth of baptism that we were buried with you and then raised by another hand to walk in newness of life. Thank you, Lord, that our old man was crucified with you. And thank you, Lord, that all the charges against us were nailed to the cross. We thank you, Lord, that now we've been raised to walk in newness of life, forgiven, filled with your spirit, called, anointed, appointed. Thank you, Lord God, for all that you did through that cross of Jesus Christ. Now I know in my heart as we get ready to close tonight that some of you are up against a real battle. I want you to look at what we have just studied. And I want you to understand and know and be confident that Jesus is going to lead you to victory. If he can lead Satan and all his legions, chained to his chariot wheels, in a victory parade, then he can take care of your problem. I want you to take a minute and give it to him right now tonight. If it's a relationship, if it's a financial need, if it's a physical affliction, sickness, disease, whatever it might be, can we just give it to the one who triumphed over the devil? Ruined him at the cross. Thank you, Jesus. We roll every burden onto you. We cast every care onto you. We give you every need in our life. We give you everything. Thank you that we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. 
and you're leading us in a victory parade. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. So I give you my all in worship. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I give you my heart and sing. Give you my all. Lord, I give you my all in worship. 